0: I invite you now to turn in your Bibles. Please have them open before you as we come before God in His Word this morning. In your Bibles you can find the passage that we'll consider today from Ephesians chapter 1 verse 15 through 23. Also for your convenience you can find that passage printed for you in the bulletin itself. And the bulletin uh, and what I'll be reading is in the ESV translation. And so we hear God's Word from Ephesians chapter 1, verse 15 to 23. This is God's Word. For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints... I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in all my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his great might, So far, the reading of God's holy word, may the Spirit write it upon our hearts this morning. Well, it's interesting that humans have always been captivated by hero stories, especially those stories where we find an unlikely hero who starts off weak and humble and apparently insignificant. You might think of the great stories of the Lord of the Rings with the hobbits, right? These lowly creatures. Or Peter Parker, who becomes Spider-Man. Or even professional athletes that start off in a, such a humble, lowly, impoverished state and they arise to prominence and fame. We love these kinds of stories. Now, why are we drawn to such stories? I think one plausible explanation is this, that deep down, we all long to be like those heroes in some sense. We see ourselves as weak and humble and apparently insignificant in our current state. And so we aspire to greatness, to significance. We long to be more than what we currently are in this moment. We sense that there is more potential that's built into us. That if we could just unleash it, unlock it, that the world would be at our fingertips. It reminds me of one particular movie... Limitless, uh, wherein the main character played by Bradley Cooper gets a hold of an experimental drug that unlocks the full potential of his brain. It's a fascinating storyline. And as he has his brain functioning at full capacity, he's able to do all kinds of things that lead him to success in the world and great fame and popularity. But what's interesting, it's not even only in science Fiction movies like that, you know, in reality, scientists around the world are actually working to create these kinds of human enhancements, such as human genetic engineering, trying to alter our DNA in order to become greater, or microchips implanted into the brain to enhance our ability of thinking. It's not novel, this new development of scientists working on this, all the way back in the Garden of Eden. With Adam and Eve, they were tempted were they not to enhance their nature, to be like God by taking from the forbidden fruit also then later in the story in Genesis at Babel, humanity used technology made by humans, bricks and there's an emphasis on that in the text bricks to build an ancient skyscraper that would lift them to higher heights and reach the glory of of the gods in their mind. And it's not even just in these old stories, but day by day, people like you and like me, we see images and we think of concepts of greatness. And so we aspire to improve ourselves in a variety of ways, in different things like in our dieting, in our exercising, in our meditations, in our hard work, in the way we present ourselves to others. We're all tempted in different ways to arrive at greatness by our own strength and ingenuity, by our own power. Now here in this text, the Apostle Paul, he's showing us another way, another way. He's reflecting in this passage on the resurrection of Christ and his ascension into glory. Those historic claims that Jesus rose bodily from death itself and then was lifted up into an alternate dimension that the Bible calls heaven, where the glory of God resides in full splendor. As Paul addresses the Christians in Ephesus, he's addressing us as well this morning, and his message is not, don't aspire to greatness. That's not what he's saying. Not not at all. Actually, he wants us to aspire to greatness, but true greatness, not as the world defines it, but rather as God defines it, as we see it in Christ. Now, what is true greatness? Well, Paul wants all Christians to aspire to the glory of our hope in Christ. This is true greatness. Christ has embodied it, that according to Christianity, the imitation of Christ, full conformity to his image, is greatness. Why? Why? because he alone is the human that has fully arrived in glory, in greatness. And that's what the ascension of Christ into glory is really all about, as he's seated now at the right hand of the Father. He has taken our lowly humanity and seated it in the highest place imaginable, the right hand of the Father forevermore. We see that with the ascension of christ he didn't leave human nature his human nature behind but instead he has taken it up to god the father with the promise of returning and renewing us in the entirety of his creation by that same resurrection power it's fascinating it's amazing christianity claims that jesus has already brought human nature to its fullest potential its highest and greatest manifestation and if that is true and it is that's what we believe here why then would you aim at anything less than the highest goal possible why why would you not aspire in life to be anything or to be less than becoming more like jesus this is the highest aspiration becoming like jesus knowing the power of his resurrection. But that's not Paul's only message here. Because if it was, if he was just telling us you can aspire to be like Jesus, well, that would be crushing, wouldn't it? Because who of us can measure up? Who of us can fully imitate Jesus? So take heart. The good news in this text is that Paul is also showing us here how we get there by faith in Jesus. In a quick preview It is not by your own strength ingenuity or human technology it is by faith in christ and in him alone so i want us to see three ways this morning in which jesus brings us pulling us into the very heart of god and glory by his spirit jesus gives us true enlightenment true orientation and true amplification of our human nature so first Jesus gives us true enlightenment, and we see that in verses 17 through 18. Look at that in the text, where Paul is praying to the Father of glory, that he may give us, through Christ his Son, the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of our hearts enlightened. In our aspirations in life for greatness, for self-improvement, we're often in pursuit of some kind of secret knowledge. We think if we just had the right information, if we knew the secret of the universe, we would be able to conquer every obstacle that comes before us and that we would arrive at greatness. Isn't this why there are thousands upon thousands of self-help books that are published every day, practically, that sell day after day, year after year, and clearly we haven't figured it out. We haven't mastered That secret knowledge because authors keep publishing self-help books and people keep buying them. But it reveals that we have this deep desire for enlightenment to be improved, to enhance ourselves, to transcend where we currently are. And this desire is actually captured in the early pages of the Bible in the story of the fall of humanity. In a sense, we could say that the serpent, that ancient deceiver, Satan, in the form of a serpent, he came and he was the one, the first one to sell a self-help book to Eve in the garden. His message, his book was very short and to the point. He said, God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. You see, he offered her enlightenment towards the enhancement of her human nature. You can improve upon yourself if you just take from the forbidden fruit and then when the woman saw that the tree was desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate she also gave some to her husband who was there with her and they ate and it says then the eyes their eyes of both were opened and they knew that they were naked he offered them enlightenment but we see it was a deceptive enlightenment They were attempting to manipulate creation in order to try and achieve by their own strength, their own power, their own ingenuity, that which God alone can offer and give as a gift. And in the end, in their search for greatness apart from God, that enlightenment that they took from the serpent left them naked, vulnerable, and empty. This story, it repeats itself almost always with every famous and successful person in the world. Those people that we see in the magazines, that we see on the news, those people that have arrived, quote unquote, with worldly success. And we find that they're ultimately not satisfied at all once they reach that point of success in the world. One recent example is the young pop star Justin Bieber. And in one of his newer songs from his album, Freedom, he says this. He says, at 17, I had a milli, a million dollars. At 17, imagine that. At 17, a million dollars, how that would affect you. Women throwing themselves at me had me going silly. On the surface, I felt like the man, like he had arrived. You know, you must imagine that. But deep inside, I felt deprived, just like an empty can. I've had everything in life that people strive for just to ask the question, What are we alive for? You see, it left him empty, naked, vulnerable, just like Adam and Eve. What are we alive for? Well, the Apostle Paul tells us here what we are alive for, what kind of enlightenment we should strive for. As he says it clearly, we are made to know God in a personal and vibrant relationship with him. That's the revelation that the Spirit gives us, a knowledge of him. That is what the Spirit of God sent by the Son gives us by faith. He brings us into a true knowledge of who God is through his living and active word, his revelation here in the Bible. You know, way back in the Old Testament with the prophets, God promised over and over again that one day he would, with the coming of the Messiah, send his Spirit to do that very thing in the hearts of his people. For example, in Jeremiah 31 We hear God's promise about the new covenant that he would make saying, I will put my law within them and I will write it upon their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother saying, know the Lord for they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest declares the Lord for I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. Part of the promise of the coming of the Spirit that Christ ascended into glory in order to give us is that He would lead us to know God according to these ancient promises. And just like Jesus added in John 16, when the Spirit of truth comes, He will guide you into all truth. Specifically, the truth of knowing who God is. Now, how does the Spirit guide us into all truth? The knowledge of God. Well, again, it's through his revealed word which is living and active, which speaks to us deep in our hearts. We see then that Jesus, in this way, he gives us true enlightenment that leaves us not empty, not vulnerable, not naked, but full of peace and joy because we were made to know God. And that's what Jesus gives us by his Spirit. Secondly, Jesus gives us true orientation, true orientation. Paul adds in verse 18 that this enlightenment by the Spirit, it leads us not only to know God, but to know what is the hope to which he has called you. What are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? This means that by the Holy Spirit at work dwelling in our hearts, Jesus is fixing our hearts to point towards our true north, our great and glorious hope of glory. We know that apart from God, we can think of our hearts uh, in this way, that apart from God, we're like a broken compass. The arrow of the compass just spinning every which way, not knowing which way to go. By that, I mean that we desire things that we should not. We aim at things in life that are evil, that are for our own glory. We are broken. We pursue fool's gold in this world instead of the riches of his glorious inheritance he has reserved for us in Christ. What is the hope of the glory to which God has called us to which Christ is by his spirit pointing us towards what is that glorious joyous inheritance that awaits us? It's nothing less than our own human nature and all of creation renewed and perfected as the dwelling place of God. That is our glorious hope. The Puritan preacher Jonathan Edwards, he called heaven our hope, our inheritance. A world of love and let me read this excerpt from his sermon on heaven where he says this what rest is there in that world that the god of peace and love fills with his own gracious presence in which the lamb of god lives and reigns filling it with the brightest and sweetest beams of his love but there is nothing to disturb or offend and no being or object to be seen that is not surrounded with perfect amiableness and sweetness where the saints shall find and enjoy all that they love and so be perfectly satisfied, where there is no division through different opinions or interests, but where all in that glorious and loving society shall be most nearly and divinely related, and each shall belong to each other, and all shall enjoy each other in perfect prosperity and riches and honor without sickness or grief or persecution or sorrow, and all this in the garden of God, in the paradise of love, where everything is filled with love and everything conspires to promote and kindle it and keep up its flame. Oh, what joy will there be springing up in the hearts of the saints after they have passed through their wearisome pilgrimage to be brought to such a paradise as this. Here is joy unspeakable indeed and full of glory. What a beautiful description of the hope that awaits us. And loved ones, this is what We are to aspire to. This is the goal that is before us on the horizon in our pilgrimage, our final destination, a land and a people that perfectly reflect the goodness, the truth, and the beauty of our King Jesus. And the ascension tells us that Jesus has already arrived there in glory. And by his Spirit, he is reorienting our hearts to that great and glorious end to be with him in paradise, to arrive with him in glory. Practically, that means that the Holy Spirit enters into our hearts and is more and more working holy desires within us to love him, to desire his world of love. Jonathan Edwards, he says again, a glorious work of the Spirit of God has been wrought in the hearts of true Christians, renewing them, by bringing down from heaven, as it were, some of the light and some of the holy pure flame that is in that world of love and giving it place in them. Their hearts are a soil in which this heavenly seed has been sown, in which it abides and grows, and so they are changed, and from being earthly have become heavenly in their dispositions. Their love of the world is mortified, and their love of God implanted. You see how the Holy Spirit is ever drawing us towards that great and glorious end by giving us this holy aspiration for this world of love this leads us with this last question how will we arrive in glory with christ well jesus he gives us as our third point true amplification of our human nature Find this in verses 19 through 20, where Paul says the Spirit is also giving us an intimate knowledge of the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe, according to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly places. Paul, here, he's telling us how we too will arrive in glory. And as I said earlier in the beginning, it's not by our own power not by our own ingenuity, not by human technology, no. As he says here, it is by the surpassing greatness of God's resurrection power in Christ. Now kids, uh, if you could have any superpower, what would it be? Any superpower. Maybe flying like Superman, right? That would be pretty cool. Or super strength like the Hulk, or perhaps web-slinging like Spider-Man, invincibility. You know, as kids, we dream of these kinds of super-enhancements of our human nature, ways of amplifying who we are, becoming greater. And these stories, they often show us, right, through the villain, the shadow form of this, they show us that just having the power, the power in the wrong hands, is actually very dangerous. And destructive and those are those villains in the stories because it's not only power that we need like super strength or flying but we need a change of nature we need a change of heart and that is what jesus's power towards us is and accomplishes a change of heart a change of nature he gives us the true amplification of our human nature by his spirit and so kids i know you might want to fly and have super strength and power, etc. But Jesus' resurrection power is the power that you want. That is the power that you should desire. Above all else, it is the superpower that Jesus actually promises to give us by faith. And this is amazing. Not only for kids, but also for us as adults in Christ. This is the power that Christ gives us by his Spirit. And what do I mean? How does this work? Well, Jesus' resurrection power is restoring and renewing us from the inside out. First he forgives us, he cleanses us, then he remakes us, putting to death our old self and then giving us new life by his spirit, filling us with his presence and love. And so little by little, God is causing us to rise with him in newness of life through the power of his resurrection. And this work he has already begun in us who believe this is the work he promises to complete in us by his Holy Spirit. And this is the true greatness to which we are called in Jesus that he is bringing to us, that he is accomplishing in us. It's amazing that even the Apostle Peter he says in his second letter that mysteriously by God's promises we are, be- we are becoming participants in divine nature. And by that We interpret that to mean that we will arrive with Jesus in glory, that God will conform us to his image, to be as much like him as creaturely possible. And this is accomplished through the power of his resurrection at work in us. But again, this ascent to glory is not one that we make by our own strength, our own striving, our own ingenuity, our own obedience. No, it is the work of God in us by his grace, according to his promises. The ascension of Christ to glory is the pledge of that promise, the guarantee that it is true and will be true for us. It's amazing that the early church fathers, they wrote a lot about the ascension and the realities tied to it. For example, in the second century, Tertullian, he wrote, Christ received from us the earnest of the flesh and has carried it with him into heaven as a pledge of that complete entirety, which is one day to be restored to it. Be not disquieted, O flesh and blood, with any care. In Christ you have acquired both heaven and the kingdom of God. Then Irenaeus, another second century church father, he wrote that the Holy Spirit is the earnest of incorruption, the means of confirming our faith in the ladder of ascent to God. We ascend through the Spirit to the Son and through the Son to the Father. The loved ones, we see that the gospel of Jesus, it's the greatest hero story of all. Jesus is the ultimate hero who came weak, humble, impoverished, and apparently insignificant as a little baby in his mother's arms. The son of God left all of his high glory and descended into the muck of our shame, our brokenness, our vulnerability, our sin, in order to die and then rise again from the dead, with great power and strength to then lavish upon us from heaven his grace and love. The son's own descent from his incarnation till death on the cross and then his glorious ascent in resurrected flesh has made our ascent to God not only a possibility, but a promised reality. That's how we should see the ascension of Christ. This is the promised reality that our life, as we read earlier in Colossians, is hid with Christ. In God and we too will appear with him in glory so we see at the close that the ascension of Jesus it clarifies what is our highest aspiration not greatness the way the world would define it but rather to be conformed to his image according to his resurrection power which is at work in us by his spirit why live for anything less than Christ the King who rules with resurrection power why aspire for technological advancements made by men when Christ he's already arrived he is already in glory and he promises to bring you there and he freely offers the greatest amplification of our human nature possible by his holy spirit and it is a gift a gift that we receive by faith alone in Christ alone this is good news indeed and we trust and follow him amen let's pray Father God, we thank you so much for sending your Son to be our champion, our Savior, our King. And now He who is ascended and right at your right hand, O oh Father, interceding for us, has given us the Spirit to lead us into all truth. That He has promised to bring us to His glory and that you are, even now, reorienting our hearts to desire you above all else. May that be true for us. May we seek those things which are above, where Christ is seated. Lord, cause us to walk in your ways, in your light, for your glory. This we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.